Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and today's episode will be the first elaboration on part three of the Vin Armani Dim Age interview. So as I have been saying, if you are new to this, you are in the wrong place. Go back to episode one. 111, and that is where this interview starts. And I'm doing it in sections where I release a section, then do a few elaboration episodes, then release the next section, and so on and so forth. So this is the first elaboration on the third section. The other disclaimer that I sometimes give and probably should have highlighted in the very first episode of releasing these elaborations and such is that this whole podcast really builds on itself. So if you don't have the information and the understanding, then maybe it might be beneficial to go back and listen to previous episodes if you have not done so already. If you have followed this podcast in its entirety, then you shouldn't have much trouble keeping up with the subjects and the things that Vin and I are talking about. However, if as you are listening to this, you are having a little extra trouble keeping up and keeping pace with all of these different references and these concepts, these types of things, then that might be beneficial to you. Now, on one hand, this is totally new information. I have not really talked much about spirituality and mysticism or any of that stuff in the previous two seasons. However, I've talked a lot about history and patterns and corruption and all of these types of things that really lay the groundwork for a lot of these things that Ven and I talk about. Even though we don't directly address those things, they are built on those concepts and that information. So again, if you are feeling a little lost with some of this stuff beyond it just being a dense interview and a lot of subjects and topics and such, then go back and listen to the rest of the podcast. Start at episode one. You'll probably have to go to the website. Most podcast players don't go back that far, but you can start there and work your way all the way through and you will be 100% caught up. You'll be in a great place for understanding all of this, understanding where we are, understanding why it's so important to understand where we are and why it's so important to take some action and do something about it, and also why that something is probably agorism. And so that will be the full disclaimer for the beginning of this episode, and I'll go ahead and jump right in. So in this part of the interview that I played last week, the third part of the Venomani interview, we talked about a lot of different things, and the specific points that I want to pull out are a little bit more about the cycles that Sarkar talks about and the descriptions of each class. I wanted to mention a few things about just some phrases that Vin and I threw around and elaborate a little bit more about that, a little bit more about the the idea of the Church of Woke, and he talked about the Church of Self and Luciferianism, that type of thing. I'll talk a little bit about that and get into a little bit about the church that got brought up. And so those are overall the topics that I want to elaborate on in this episode. So to begin with, in the very beginning of this part, part three of the interview, we talked about the cycles. And so this was Uh, begun by myself, and I talked about the ages of man. And if you don't remember, hopefully that jogged your memory, because I did elaborate on that uh, pretty in-depth in, I think, the very first elaboration episode on part one. And so that should have been a bit of a reminder, actually, because in the actual interview, I kind of just glanced over it and gave a very brief 
overview. And so that should have jogged your memory to the more detailed explanation that I gave back then. But also that brought Vin into talking about Sarkar. He said that, yes, the patterns and the cycles that I am pointing out do line up extremely well with what Sarkar described. And so he started to give the descriptions of each class in each age. And that's where I interrupted a bit because there is this what seems to be contradiction between the age of religion and the age of empire because the age of religion has the class domination of the warrior class, that is, uh, at least according to Sarkar's theory. And then in the age of empire, it is the thinker class. And so that may seem a little bit contradictory, where the age of religion has a warrior and the age of empire has a priest or a thinker. And so that's why I had to interrupt there and uh, basically explain that a little further, because that actually it threw me for a loop personally when I was trying to figure all this stuff out originally. And so that's why I did make sure I inserted that. But then that sidetracked our conversation and who knows where we went from there, but we went somewhere else. And so I want to go back to what Vin had started to say about Sarkar's classes and how those relate to the different ages and what is going on there. So Sarkar says that the first archetype is the commoner, and Vin did start to talk about this, about how it's all about humans having a fear of nature. There's a lot of unknown going on here. This is an age of total mysticism. You have the worker trying to meet the material needs of themselves and their community, and this is what's really going on. So it's the age of the commoner, it's the mystical age, and it's this kind of battle with nature, not understanding nature, these types of things. And again, that's uh, mystical, that's a mystical age. And that is what I refer to as the age of survival. Now, the next age, the age of religion, is where Sarkar says that the archetype of the warrior is dominant. And this would be things like chiefs and kings. And the idea here is that we no longer have this total fear of nature. Now we are creating materials and tools, and we are using these things in order to conquer nature, in order to dominate nature, as well as dominate each other, fellow humans. And so the idea here is that with the warrior, you have order through power. So this is where I interjected and said that according to my ages of man, that's the age of religion, but that is because religion was the dominant system that was used as a way to leverage power, but that power was typically gained through military might, through the archetype of the warrior. It wasn't necessarily only gained through religious practices and that kind of stuff. So that is the idea there, is that the warrior is dominant and man is conquering nature. And that's kind of where Vin cut off, and again, I interjected. So to jump back in with where he would have gone next, that would be, according to my framework, the age of empire. And this, according to Sarkar, is the age that is dominated by the thinker archetype or the priest archetype. And this would be the intellectual. So it's no longer power through 
physical force, the power of the warrior, where there's order through power from that perspective. Now there's order through power still, but it's power through ideas. It's power through inspiration, through nationalism, these types of things. And so these are more esoteric. These are more ideas and concepts. They're less concrete. And that is the idea of the thinker. Now, although the thinker is using immaterial methods, some immaterial methods to assert their power, and with the caveat here that the Age of Empires is all about military might still. Again, every archetype still plays a role in the next, and I'll talk about that a little bit here in just a minute, but the point overall is that they're starting to introduce and starting to dominate their control through more intellectual means and less concrete means, but at the same time, these are not mystical means or spiritual means or religious means. We are shifting out of that. So whereas in the previous age, it was a mix between mysticism and materialism. We're starting to incorporate material means, tools, these kinds of things to conquer nature. That was the idea there. Now we're shifting totally into materialism, a purely materialist society here. And so although things are related around ideas, thinking, philosophy, these are really coming into play, it's not from that mystical perspective. Hopefully you can see the difference there. The The difference, to state it differently in the way that I've been stating things in relation to nature, is that the idea on this age is to understand nature. It's not about being afraid of nature. It's not about trying to conquer nature. It's really trying to understand nature. It is totally taking the mysticism out of the natural world, taking the mysticism out of the unknown and trying to fully understand that intellectually so that there is no more mystical aspect involved here. So this age is against the mystics, and that would be what's going on in the age of empire, the age of the thinker. So in the following age, the age we're much more familiar with, this would be the age of economics. You have the archetype of the merchant that is dominant, according to Sarkar. And so uh, when we talk about the material and the mystical, we are getting back into a mixed relationship here. We're coming out of the purely material, and we're starting to incorporate some mystical aspects. And so with this, the merchant class is coming in and using techniques like exchange and markets and capitalism, these types of things, free enterprise, corporations, these are the types of things that are starting to appear. And as I'm sure you know by listening to Vin, these have a mystical component. There is some magic involved with these more modern economic systems and structures, but we are still a pretty material material society in the age of economics. So again, it's a mix of both, and that's where that age lies. So with this, the relationship to nature is typically to exploit nature and to insert some amount of mysticism back into nature. And so, again, in the previous age, it was about totally understanding nature and taking out all of the mysticism. Now, now that we understand it, to a large degree at least, the idea is to take that understanding and exploit it for profits, to make a profit 
off of the understanding of nature. But at the same time, you see a huge rise in things like science fiction, for example, and uh, science and technology that is starting to be able to manipulate and change aspects of the natural world that we weren't able to do before. That's adding in that aspect of of mysticism. That's what I'm talking about here. And so that is what's going on in the age of economics with the merchant class being dominant. So when Vin talks about this and he talks about how the merchant class was very dominant and we are seeing the full corruption of that right now, he's making this reference to this merchant class here. And that full corruption is a sign of the end of that age and beginning of the next. And so the next Next, in my framework, is the age of science. And so, according to the cycles of Sarkar that he points out, this would be a shift from the mixed society related to materialism and mysticism and into a totally mystical society again. The relationship with nature is now totally getting into the idea of manipulating and changing nature to control nature. And this is something that is purely in the mystical realm. Again, we're adding some of that in in the previous age, but this age, the age of science, is all about dominating nature, natural systems, the natural order of things, being able to change that. Things like transhumanism, genetic modification, these types of ideas, as well as technology, having computers that can think for themselves, in a sense, creating consciousness. These are ways of totally changing the way the natural world works, manipulating those systems. And that is a mystical thing. That is something that involves magic from the definition that Vin and I are using here, at least. And so uh, that should kind of get us back up to date. And these concepts, again, they should be familiar. We've talked about them before. That first elaboration episode that was really long, and I talked about all the different historical cycles. I talked about all these things. And so uh, although I didn't use these exact examples of how Sakar talks about how these archetypes interact with the changes in society, uh, again, hopefully you will at least have that base understanding so that you can take this new information and apply it without really having to understand all the rest of it because you should have already understood that and some of it should just be a reminder and an overview with some of this added information and detail. So the next part to address is this aspect of corruption and how that plays a role and how these ages overlap. So Vin did specifically say that, well, it's difficult to pinpoint these specific classes and specific ages and how they change and how they transition. He mentioned Hesiod, how he added in this totally new age out of nowhere, in a sense, to kind of make up for a gap that he saw. But that overall, these ages, they overlap, they involve each other. Sometimes they, well, I would say always, they have the same players. And the way that I would at least describe this is that the issue is an issue of dominance. And so one group, and I think it would be easiest if I use the word machine. So again, to remind you from a philosophical perspective, talking about, I believe that came from Deleuze, but it's the idea that anything can be a machine. My body can be a machine. My consciousness, my whole being can be a machine. A corporation can be a machine. A state can be a machine. It's just 
a thing that has processes that help to accomplish something. And so that could be from a very small level to a very large macro level. We can talk about any of that as being a machine. And so I will talk about these different classes and these different groups that are influencing things as machines, because I think that fits pretty well here. So the idea is that one machine controls the other machine and the other machine is used for control by the dominant one. And so the way this plays out, for example, is that when you have the age of religion with the warrior being dominant, the warrior is the dominant class here. And so while the warrior is the one that is at the top, you still have these other classes in play. There are still commoners, there are still priests and thinkers, there are still merchants. All of these people are still in play. These machines are still in existence and still have influence. The difference is that the warrior is in the dominant position and the other machines are working for the warrior. And that's the way this works. But on the flip side, the warrior is using these other machines in order to assert its dominance on the society as a whole. So the warrior is using the priest class. That is why it's the age of religion, even though the warrior's dominant, because religion is a tool that is being used for power by the warrior class to control the society. So again, the priest class is being used. That machine is being used to further the dominance of the dominant machine, the warrior class here. And so you see that all of these classes are in existence, but one is using another and one is being dominant over all others. There are even more layers you could add on to that, but I'm not going to go there right now. I'll just go ahead and go into another example at the same layer, the same level, I would say. And that would be in the next age, the age of empire. You have the thinker class as being dominant. So that is the dominant machine, is the priestly class, the thinker class. And so with this... The dominant machine is ruling over the warrior class, the commoner class, and the merchant class. They're ruling over all of it. Think of Rome. It is these philosopher kings, in a sense. It is the emperors that are ruling over everything. They are running the entire empire from the military arm to the merchant arm to all of the citizens, all of the commoners. They are running it all. But you see that the dominant machine here, the priest class, they are using some other machines specifically to really increase their dominance. So as is the case in every other age, it's mainly the archetype from the previous age and from the next age that are being used for control. One is in a corrupted form and one is basically a prefiguration of the coming age. So I guess I didn't mention the former in the previous age. So in the age of religion, the warrior class is dominant. They are using the prefiguration of the next age, the priest class, in order to 
solidify their domination, but they're also using the corrupted version of the previous archetype. That would be the archetype of the commoner. And so instead of the commoner now having a lot of free will and a lot of power and a lot of communal credit, so to say, the commoner is now just totally, at least that picture of what the commoner is, is totally corrupted. Now the commoner is just a piece it's just a pawn. The commoner is just a part of the main religion, just a part of the army, just a part of the citizenry that is completely controlled by this ruling machine that dominates through force and through religion. And also, you can see how the next archetype, the priest class, is being used to dominate over the previous archetype of the commoner, all with the warrior as being at the top. So it's it's really interesting how there's that interplay here. But going back to this next age and the next next example, the age of empire, what we see here is, of course, the same thing. You're going to see the same thing in each age. And so the idea here is that the thinker class is using the corrupted version of the warrior class. So it's no longer the war machine that is dominant over all of society. However, the war machine is being used by the intellectual machine, by the priest class, by the emperors in order to solidify their dominance over the rest of society. So it's a corrupted version. Instead of the war machine being the dominant machine total, it is now just a way to assert the dominance of the thinker class. And so we see that corrupted aspect of the previous archetype, and then the prefiguration of the next arch archetype would be the merchant class. And you're you're starting to see this come into play in the Age of Empire, where there is this idea of global commerce, at least to an extent, of the known world at least. If you look at the Roman Empire, again, that's the best example of this age, they were starting to trade with countries and continents that are so far away that no one had ever really encountered on a regular basis until that time. And this is all being done through exchange, through trade being done by the merchant class. And this economic aspect of the empire and of the age of empires that is being run by, again, the thinker class, this aspect, this machine of the merchants is the prefiguration of who will be dominant next. And so that's what's going on here, where you have the archetype previous of the warrior class, a corrupted version is being used to initiate the dominance of the thinker machine. And now the thinker machine is also using the prefiguration of the next archetype as a, another powerful tool of their domination. And you could do the same thing in the next stage. And the same thing in the first age. So in the next age, the age of economics, you have the merchant class dominant. They are using a corrupted version of the thinker class. So that's why the merchants truly run things. It's the bankers. It is the CEOs. It is the corporate world that's actually the ones behind the political 
leaders. And so this is something that uh, you should know by now. Again, that's one of those things. If you've listened to the whole podcast, you know that very well, especially the corruption and conspiracy episodes, that series I did in season one. But the idea here is that the merchant class is using the thinker class, the priestly class, the ruling class of the previous age, a corrupted version of that, politicians, you could hopefully see that. And so they're using that to assert their dominance, but there's also this prefiguration of the next class coming into play where they are starting to use that to also solidify their dominance. And the next class is actually going back to the commoner archetype. And so the idea here is that the age of economics with the merchant class ruling, it's all about consumerism. It's all about entertainment. It's all about using the masses. It's this idea of having a company that doesn't make any money. That actually lose money for years. But what they are doing is building a user base and then exploiting that user base in order to solidify their dominance even more. So who is that user base? Well, it's the commoner. And so that's the same pattern. It's the same pattern over and over and over and over again. You could even look back at the fourth turning. So with the fourth turning, you have these different generations and they also use different archetypes for each generation. But even though the generations change, the archetypes basically just change their roles. It's the same archetype. It is just playing a different role in each section of the four turnings, so to say. And so in the first turning, you might have one archetype being dominant, and in the next turning, a different archetype is being dominant, and so on and so forth. But the other archetypes are still in existence. They are still influencing things. They still have their parts to play. And so these are the reasons why, at least in my opinion, that Vin is talking about how it's really hard to pinpoint things, and it's there's a lot of overlap going on here. It's, it's because of these dynamics. It's because we live in a very complex society. Reality is a complex thing. And so it's not something we can completely nail down. It might even be helpful to go back to the fourth turning and just give you an example of how this plays out because there really are so many parallels and things that are very similar here. So in the fourth turning, in that framework, there are four archetypes. It's the prophet, the artist, the hero, and the nomad. And so if you look at the first turning, according to that framework, that's roughly between 1946 and 64. In this time period, the four generations are the boomer generation, then the silent generation, then the GI generation, and the lost generation. And so with this, the boomers are manifesting the prophet archetype, and they will through every single cycle, each of the four turnings. The silent generation is the artist archetype, the GI generation is the hero, and the lost generation is the nomad. And so as the turnings progress, you're always going to have one generation basically die off, to put it bluntly, and a new generation that is born. And so whoever was the last generation, in this example, the lost generation was the last one with the archetype of the nomad, they drop off in the second turning. This would be the time period between 64 and 84, roughly. And so as the lost generation drops off, you have a new generation that comes into play. That's the Gen X generation. 
And they are the ones that take on this archetype of the nomad. And then the boomers are still the prophets. The silent generation, still the artists. The hero um, archetype is represented by the GI generation. And this happens in the next turning as well, where the GI generation drops off. And now the next generation that comes into being the millennial generation takes on that archetype that the GI generation had, and that would be the hero archetype. And so as we get into the final turning, where we are now the fourth turning, we have the boomers as being the oldest generation here. They are the prophet archetype. You have Gen X as the nomads, the millennials as the hero archetype, and the homeland generation, as how they term it at least, is the artist archetype that's resurrected because the silent generation is now gone, and the new generation is what they are referring to as the homeland generation. These are the people that were born post 9-11. And so with this, the interesting thing that I want to point out here is the aspect of the material to the mystical. Now, you can imagine that it is always going to be the younger generations that determine what the future is going to be like. And in the fourth turning framework, they talk about this, about how after the fourth turning, you have these crises that happen. And out of that come new institutions, new faith in institutions, new powers that are held by these new institutions. And the generation that will take control of this will be the millennial generation and the homeland generation will be highly influential right behind them. Well, if you look at the idea of materialism to mysticism, the millennial generation is still material, but they're getting highly mystical, highly into the idea of the virtual world. They largely grew up with the internet and with the technologies that we have today. So you're getting this mystical component, but the homeland generation, they've never known life without the internet, without all of the technology that we have today, without all of these magical capabilities that we have. And the archetype that's represented here is the artist. And what is the artist? The artist is completely focused on mysticism, of course. They are not materialistic. They are the creative group. And so it's not about materialism and consumerism, these types of things, with an artist archetype. It is about creating things, manipulating things, changing things, which should sound familiar with the coming age, the age of science, the age of mysticism. And so I just find that just really interesting how these things always play out over and over and over again. And they they intertwine so well, which to me is a signal that they are very accurate, which is good because it would be a big waste of time if we we're covering all these things in this amount of detail and it wasn't accurate. So that is reassuring and should be reassuring to you as well. To move out of the concept of historical cycles and get back into the next a set of topics that Vin and I discussed, he really started getting back into the idea of the Church of Woke and that being a religion and different aspects of that, as well as the two dynamics of being either completely communal or completely individualistic. And so I want to get into that a little bit. And also, I, I re-listened to this part today just to refresh my mind for this elaboration episode. And one thing that did stick out to me was that he does talk about 
about this aspect that he believes the battle is always between an individualistic mindset and a communal mindset. And if you think back, at least if you have uh, been listening to this podcast for a while, think back to my summary episodes at the end of season one. I wrap that up with two episodes that have... Uh, titles and concepts that should sound very familiar. Episode 53 was the first summary of season one, and it was about overarching concepts, centralization versus decentralization, and theory versus reality. And so this is the idea that Venn is talking about. It's this contrast between an individualistic concept and a communal concept. Decentralization is more individualistic. Centralization is more communal in general. And also playing, I I just saw this, this didn't click with me before because I didn't remember this, but I also talked about theory versus reality, and that should also um, remind you of the things that we are discussing in this interview as well. But then the next episode, I kind of did two to recap and wrap up all of season one. This would be episode 54. The title is Power Behind the scenes, season one conclusion. And so the idea here is about all of the influences that are behind the scenes that really affect society. Who is really in control? Who is really influencing things? And so I talk about things like nonprofits and basically the merchant class that really runs the political class. So again, concepts that we're bringing out now. So that was just interesting as I was re-listening to that part of the interview with Vin Armani today, uh, that kind of jawed my memory. It's like, oh, yes, that was my conclusion as well at the end of season one was that it is all about this contrast between the two, the focus of the individual or the focus on the community coming together and building something as a group or focusing on the rights and freedoms and liberties of each individual within the group. And so that is the contrast going on there. I also found it interesting when Vin referenced the idea of the religion of the individualistic mindset. And so it reminded me of something I had heard before, and I don't know much about Luciferianism, so I don't know the total accuracy of this, but I have at least been told that the greatest day for a Luciferian uh, Satanist, you know, whatever the word is for that, again, I'm not well studied in that aspect of, I guess that would be a religion, the greatest day is your birthday, because it's all about the self. It is the church of self, pretty much. And that's what Vin talks about, that, um, that that is the religion of the totally individualistic mindset. I do what I will despite the impact on anyone else. I don't care about anyone. I only care about me. It's all about the self. And so that is one aspect. And he says psychopathic as a word to describe this, but I would actually change that up slightly and say it would be more sociopathic. It would be more uh, a lack of morality, a lack of being able to make an ethical decision because you don't have an idea or a concept of ethics. You don't believe they exist. You do what you want, and that is the only idea of morality and ethics that you have. It's not that you are crazy or not that you are just intentionally wanting to hurt 
hurt everybody else. It's just that you don't care. You have no emotions when it comes to that aspect, the aspect of morality. But it is interesting how the psychopathic traits and the sociopathic traits often go together, and you can often tie aspects of both of those to the ruling class. And that is just the reality of how things are. Now, another interesting aspect is that with the Church of Woke, it's, it is a communal religion. It's all about the idea of the social body. And so the Church of Woke is completely against the idea of an individualistic mindset, at least a purely individual mindset. And so that is why Vin says that they have completely dominated and wiped out the other side of the spectrum here. And that is true. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about coming into that second manifestation of technocracy, one that is all about the social body, one that is all about the community. It's a communal mindset. And so that's what's going on here. Now, to talk about the difference between the role of the individual and the role of the community, I want to also bring back in the Two Kingdoms perspective that Vin and I have mentioned a few times and that I've done a lot of elaboration on. And so uh, this would be the perspective of the Kingdom of God versus the Church of Woke. And so as a disclaimer, just total side note here, but it reminded me, um, I tried to get a guest that I thought would be really good for this podcast to come on and kind of wrap up this series. And they did not want to participate. And one of the main reasons they cited was because they did not like the the term, the Church of Woke. They thought that was a little too divisive, a little too triggering, and they didn't want to be associated with that, nor did they want to be associated with crypto-libertarians. So I can only guess that would be a reference to Vin Armani, although I've covered crypto. I've also talked about negative aspects of it, so I really don't know, to be honest. But uh, partially because of that, and partially because I read an interesting article a few weeks ago that used the phrase, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, and I've heard that frame a lot. You know, that's actually a biblical framing as well, light versus darkness. And so I, I want to use that for my examples today. Instead of kingdom of God, I'll say the kingdom of light. And instead of the church of woke, we'll say the kingdom of darkness. And that fits the descriptions that I've given in other elaboration episodes very well, I think. So with the kingdom of light, we have individuals that choose to serve the community. And the community is valued as a tool for service of the individual. The community also serves as a symbol of God, of the natural order, of the logos, of the way reality works, the truths of reality. The community is an example of that, a symbol of that. And then the third reason why the community is valued is because it's made up of individuals. And so that would be why the community has so much value is because every individual has so much value. So just the more whenever you have a bunch of those individuals together as a community. And so that's the idea here. That would be the kingdom of light. There is a communal aspect, but it is more individualistic. Now with the kingdom of darkness, obviously it's gonna be the opposite. Of course, you should know that by now. So with this, with the kingdom of darkness, 
you have the individual that is not choosing to serve. The individual is now choosing to be served. In this kingdom, in the kingdom of darkness, the community is valued as a tool to be served, for the individual to be served. Whereas in the kingdom of light, the community is valued as a tool for service of the individual. Now the community is valued as a tool not to serve all the other individuals involved, but just to serve the self. That is the only individual that matters because it is all about the self. Whereas the kingdom of light is all about service, it is sacrificing the self for the sake of other individuals. Now it's all about the self and you sacrifice the community and the other other individuals in order to serve the self. That's why the community is valued is because it serves the self. And that seems contradictory because everything in the kingdom of darkness is contradictory. That's kind of just the nature of it. And so the other aspect of the value of the community is that it is a symbol of human ideals. It's no longer a symbol of God or a divine order or the natural way of things. Now the community is a symbol of human ideals and human manipulation and us choosing how things will work, us deciding what nature should be, not what it naturally is. And then the final reason why community is valued in the kingdom of darkness is for its uniformity of belief and of action and of being. So it's all about uniformity of all the individuals. So with the Kingdom of Light, the community was valued, at least the last, the third reason why it was valued was because it is just a bunch of individuals and individuals have so much value themselves that when you bring them together, the community is even more valued because of the fact that it's made up of individuals. Now with the kingdom of darkness, of course, it's the opposite where it's no longer about all of these individuals with all their value. It's about conforming all of these individuals into one concept into one reality, into one uniform social body. It's all about uniformity, and it does encompass belief, action, being. So the individual ends up being erased because the individual is not valued, because the individual doesn't matter. The only individual that matters is the self. But if everybody is operating under that paradigm, then the only dominant machine in this system is going to be the community as a whole, because people are only valuing the self and the community for the way it serves the self. And no one is going to be able to achieve this because each self, each individual machine is just looking out for itself. And so the other aspect, the other priority that would be the social body is the one that is going to take dominance because there's no way you can have each individual self using all the other selves for their own benefit. That just can't happen. And so that is why it is a totally communal kingdom. It is a kingdom of the communal mindset, of a centralized mindset where there is one concept, one idea, one belief system, one religion, and everybody is conforming to the one. Whereas in the kingdom of light, it is the opposite. It is decentralized. It's a bunch of different, highly valued individuals where they are all unique. They are all making different choices. They are making choices to serve one another, not to prioritize themselves 
themselves. So again, it's a totally different mindset. It's an opposite. It always is. So Venn does say that the only opposition to the Church of Woke is the Logos. And he doesn't go into a whole lot of explanation about what the Logos is and his idea of that. So I'm going to mix an explanation that I heard him give in a recent interview that he did and mix that with work that I have done myself. I'm writing a book and part of that, there's one section on the concept of the Logos. And so I'll mesh both of our ideas together here and give you a bit of an explanation of what the Logos is and why and how that is something that is in opposition of the Church of Woke. And you might already get this stuff because I've talked about, I've talked around this concept multiple times in the elaboration episodes. But the idea here is that the Logos comes from the Greek concept, Greek philosophy, where the philosophers then, I remember reading Aristotle, he talks about this a lot, where he says that the universe would have had to have been created. Something had to start this, and it had to have been intelligently designed. There was some divinity involved in structuring how things work, in creating things. Things just don't come from nothing. That doesn't make any sense. It can't happen. You could have the Big Bang, but what did the Big Bang start out as? There had to have been something there to bang. It, it doesn't just magically appear. And if it did, it would magically appear because something made it appear. And what is that something? And so the idea is that the Logos is basically the divine entity, or you could say it is the divine structure of nature. It is the order of nature. It is how the world works, how all of creation works together. What is the natural order? All of this. And if there's a consciousness that either was involved with creating it and structuring it or is involved with managing it or both, this is the idea of the Logos. And so in the Bible, in the New Testament, uh, you have John saying that in the beginning was the Logos. And he identifies what the Logos is. He says, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And so he is identifying the God of the Hebrews before this, but uh, the God of the Bible. He is identifying that God as being the Logos that the Greek philosophers had been talking about. And so that's the idea of Logos. But to relate this to what we're talking about here as the Logos being the opposition to the Church of Woke, to the Kingdom of Darkness, well, it does make a lot of sense when you frame it like that because the Logos is the structure of the natural world. It is the way nature was designed. It's the way nature op operates. And of course, as I've been saying, the kingdom of darkness, the church of woke, it's all about manipulating nature. It's all about changing the natural order. It's all about taking control of the way that things work. It's the opposite. And so if that's what someone is trying to do, if someone is trying to change nature, to manipulate nature, to create their own version of how nature should work, what would stand in opposition of that? Well, of course, it would be the entity that designed nature, that controls the way nature does operate, the natural order, the natural way of things, or a system or people that represent 
the logos and represent those concepts, that would be the natural opposition to something that is trying to change and destroy those things. And so that is why the logos is the only opposition to the Church of Woke. And that is why I am using the New Testament church and Christianity as my main set of parallels and comparisons here because they fit so well, just like the historical cycles. If they line up every single time, there's a lot of value to that. There's some truth that is in existence there that we are proving because it keeps adding up. It keeps being true. It keeps explaining reality over and over and over again. Now, I can't remember if it was Vin or if it was me that mentioned this, but someone mentioned that the church was a self-organizing system that can't be defeated. And I think that was in the context of talking about the Logos being the opposition to the Church of Woke, and so the example is the church that would be in opposition to this new cultural shift and, let's say, the new machine of the Kingdom of Darkness. And so with this, I can make some comparisons as well to corporations, because this is a concept that we've talked about multiple times here, and that would be the church is a self-organizing system that can't be defeated. It is just like a corporation, except it can't go bankrupt materially like a corporation because it is not a material institution. And so that is a major advantage. If a corporation goes completely bankrupt, it can be defeated. It does disappear. It does go away. It doesn't just keep going. Now, so long as a corporation still has assets, still has employees of some kind, doesn't have to be the same ones, but has to have somebody, it has to have systems that are still running, has to be making money or generating profits, or at the very least, having some way to propagate itself. And in our current world, that is the profit motive here. This is the material aspect because the corporation, while in a way it is an immaterial entity, it is still very tied to the material world. This is why corporations have to bow to the Church of Woke and to these cultural shifts and changes and this cultural pressure, because if they don't, then the material aspects of that corporation are in jeopardy. They become the victim of the Church of Woke, because the Church of Woke is not a materially manifested thing. It is a completely mystical entity, a completely immaterial machine, whereas corporations are a mix. And that just off the top of my head, that reminds me of what we were talking about earlier about the age of economics is an age of a mix of materialism and mysticism. And that is the age of the corporation. That is what we're talking about here. Now, the next age, the age of science, is all about the immaterial. It is a totally mystical age. And that is why the dominant player, the Church of Woke, the Kingdom of Darkness, or, I mean, ideally, it would be the Kingdom of Light, but either way, it is a totally mystical entity, not a corporation that is a mixed between the mystical and the material. And in the previous age, the Age of Empire, the dominant player, the empire, is a purely or almost purely material entity. There is not a huge immaterial aspect of that. And so, again, you see these shifts about how it shifts from the material to the mix between the two to the mystical. And that is where the Church of Woke 
and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. They both have these advantages, especially in the coming mystical age, because they are mystical entities. They're mystical machines. And that is why they dominate. That is also why the kingdom of light is the opposition to the kingdom of darkness. That's why the Logos is the opposition to the Church of Woke, because it has to be something that is mystical. It can't be a mix. It can't be material. You can't fight it that way. You don't fight a spiritual battle with a gun. It it doesn't work. These are two different things. And so that is something that hopefully can help that concept sink in a little more there. And so with this, that did bring us into organized religion, but I don't think I'm going to get into that. It's already been almost an hour, and so I'm going to go ahead and cut it there. But looking at my notes here, I'll talk next time about organized religion. I'll talk about, again, how the material corrupts and decays. Then says that material systems always, human institutions always corrupt and decay. And so we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about the idea of the render unto Caesar story. And that is a very good one. There's a lot to draw from with that. Vin actually gave me an early copy or sent me an early copy of his book, Render Unto Caesar. And I have not finished it entirely, but I am, I think, most of the way through it. And so I can draw a little bit from that, although I won't give any of it away. But I myself, also have done a lot of study on that topic because in my book, I also have a section on that story. I have some commentary on that story. So I've got a lot of notes to draw from there too. But we'll talk about that. We'll talk about money and currency in general. We'll also talk about how authority is derived. He made a big point about authority and how that was the big deal. So we'll talk a little bit about that and relate that back to currencies such as cryptocurrencies, and that'll come into play here. And then I'll also mention a little bit about how he talked about the um, different historical examples of combating the evils and corruptions of the ruling class. He mentioned Gandhi. And so we'll talk a little bit about that and about that aspect of the spiritual battle that's going on there about how it doesn't get fought in a material way, but instead it's done in an immaterial, individualistic way. And that is very different. And so that will be the elaboration episode coming up next. Next week, I would also like to announce that the new logo is officially done. So you should see that when you pull up this podcast. Now, when I first uploaded it, I uploaded the wrong version. I have one version with black lettering and one version with white lettering. And the black lettering is the first one I did. And at least on my player, you can't really see it very well. It didn't work out well. So I'm going to switch that to the white lettering, but it's the exact same logo. So you should see that. Hopefully you guys like it. I've had at least a few people say that they really like it and that it looks really nice. So good. I'm glad. Hopefully the rest of you like it as well. And so with that, I am doing an order for mugs for merchandise that was requested by supporters. So those will be coming at some point. I honestly have no idea how long it takes them to process an order for custom mugs, get those sent out. Then I can send them out to you guys. But that process has started and I have emailed, I believe, 
anyone who had requested a mug for their merchandise perk for their support. There have not been any new subscribers since the last episode, but there have been a few new reviews. So thank you very much. And I guess they're not really new. One was from January and one was from March. But anyway, they are relatively new. I haven't specifically thanked these people. One of them had the title of insightful and thought-provoking, and the other one had the title of intelligence mixed with intrigue. And so this is really nice. I, I really appreciate that. That is definitely encouraging. And the writing of your review, what you said about it specifically, was very kind. And I greatly appreciate that. So thank you very much. Anybody who has not yet left a review, please do so. Again, I still don't have very many. And that would be very helpful for people that are searching for this type of content. I would love for them to find this because people that are interested in this stuff I think would greatly benefit from this content and this show specifically. So again, thank you all very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your financial support. Those of you who are doing so, thank you for the reviews, the ratings. If there are any more of those, I do greatly appreciate it. It really helps. I'm out of here. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.